The web's Michael Smith. It's episode 177 of Kane's Cast. And you know what? What's that? We've been putting in a lot of overtime. It's been a lot of overtime. And you know what? Nobody gets paid for it. Players don't get paid. I have no complaints about that. We don't get paid extra. I have no complaints about that. I love bonus hockey. Oh, it's free hockey. Fans. Fans get treated to free hockey, and they've been treated to quite a pretty good amount of free hockey in these last three games. Um, Basically, they've been given an extra game of hockey. Right, exactly. Um, And some of these players, Brett Pesci, Brady Shea, have almost played an extra game of hockey, too, when you look at the ice time. Um, But we'll get into all that here on episode 177 of Kane's Cast. Which is presented by, as always, by Storm Brew from our friends at R&D Brewing right oh. here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Just 97 calories, 2.4 carbs, crisp, refreshing, delicious. And if you are at PNC Arena, a 16-ounce can only costs you $5. And you'll need it as the game stretch into overtime to oh, yeah. keep your voice fluid and crispy. Oh, very crispy. And the voices have made a difference in this series. Once again, thanks to R&D Brewing. And they have several other amazing flavors of beverages like their Riviera Mexican Lager or their Seven Saturdays IPA. Michael Smith, the Webb's Michael Smith, and the Hard Seltzer's Michael Smith, a fan of their Isla Seltzer's. Tasty. Black cherry, key lime, tropical, and uh, raspberry lemonade. All there for you. All very delicious. All to consume responsibly. Thank you, R&D Brewing, the fine, fine sponsor of this podcast, thanks to Stormbrew. Thank you. Or I should say lemon raspberry. Same thing. But either, either way. The flavors are all there. That's all that matters. The aroma is, too. Um, this series between the Carolina Hurricanes and Nashville Predators has been all there. Yes. Aromas, flavors, everything that you can ask for, and then some, really. Uh, in these uh, first five games of the series, not exactly how I think probably either team, certainly not myself, probably not yourself as well, figure that the first five games of the series would go. Um, I thought, you know, after the first two games here in Raleigh that the Hurricanes would be able to at least grab at least one on the road, maybe finish it off back here in Raleigh in game five. But that's what happens in overtime playoff hockey it's a uh, it's a flip of the coin as Jordan Martinook said after game four and the Predators won a couple of coin tosses um you know when you look at when you look at both of those games I, I thought Nashville probably was uh, you know they had the better game in game three I thought the Hurricanes had the better game in game four especially when you look at shot attempts in the first period 38 to 8 the Hurricanes had that advantage in 26 to 9 in the second overtime as well. And UC Saros was good. And that's what we talked about, you know, coming into the series. Uh, I know uh, Brooks Bratton from the Nashville Predators mentioned it. If the Predators were going to have a chance in the series, UC Saros was going to be the reason. And in those two games in Nashville, he certainly was a difference maker for the Predators. Sure. He's the reason why the Predators, if, if you want to point to it, why they're in the playoffs is because UC Saros caught fire the last month and a half of the regular season, backstopped Nashville into the into that four spot in the Central Division. 
I think he put himself in the Vesna Trophy talk for the best goalie in the National Hockey League with how he played down the stretch. And then this is a team, they know their identity. They know what they're supposed to do. The funny thing is they didn't get the contributions they were expecting from their big ticket players, from Ryan Johansson and Matt Duchesne this season. Yeah, They were getting it from Mikhail Granlund and Luke Cunning and then a, a, a herd line of, of rookies and you know big bodies, that's what they call their fourth line, that Colton Sissons uh, centers for the most part with Yakov Trenin, and we got to see him up close and personal in game number five. If you're a Canes fan, not too happy. Preds fans like to see him score his first two goals. Yeah. And then they had a rotation of big rookie wingers like Tanner Janot, Matthew Olivier, who will occupy that other spot. Callie Yarncroke, by the way, played up with that Granlin line. They had something ridiculous, like 24 points apiece as a line uh, the last 19 games of the season for Nashville. So I kind of went into this series going, if you're Nashville and you play like that and you can get anything out of Johansson and Duchesne, okay, well, this could be uh, a much tougher series than everybody's predicting. On the other side, if you're the Canes, keep doing what you're doing. And I'm with you. After the first two games, I'm like, well, Carolina's going to get a game in Nashville. Yeah, It'll come back here. It'll be one of those series, much like the Canes-Boston series last year. It'll be one of those series that will read 4-1 Carolina, but it was really a closer series than that. Well, when you get to overtime, uh, that's the funny thing about this. It is a coin flip game. So I'm sure that there are people out there doing hand-wringing and panicking about, you know, what's wrong? How come the Canes lost two games to Nashville? You go on the road where last change in the playoffs matters. Yeah, everything matters. Every mistake is heightened. Every call is put under the microscope. But the Canes had a chance to win both of those games in Nashville because they went to overtime in double overtime. Yeah. So I, when this series shifted back to PNC Arena, for as we're recording this here on a Wednesday for Tuesday night's game number five, I wasn't panicked about it. No. Uh, the only thing that worries me was Jacob Slavin had only played one game in the series. And that is something that you can see what Jacob Slavin means to this team because it can keep them in a better rotation with their pairings. When things start to go sideways, you can throw him out there just the way he plays. That top four is as good as any top four in the league. And that's not taking anything away from Yanni Hockenpah. And by the way, Max Lajoie, who jumped in, hi, uh, I'm the new guy. I'm going to play with you guys for the first time in the playoffs. I thought he was very good in the role that they gave him. Yeah. He did everything they asked. But coming back here to Carolina, that game last night, even if the Canes didn't win it, I still had in the back of my mind, it's only a must win when if you don't win, your series is over. Like that's to me, you know, really a must win. But that game, as it started to creep on, and, you know, I don't know about you, you're watching it and you're putting your story together. I'm starting to sit here and go, okay, this this isn't the script for the Carolina Hurricanes. This is the script for Nashville. It's It's been a tight series and you've got to give the Predators a ton of credit, but the Canes found a way to win. They were a bounce or two away from maybe wrapping up the series in Nashville. And now we'll see if they can do that for game six. Yeah. And there's been a lot of overtime hockey. Uh, and with that comes so much overtime hockey, a lot of uh, rest and recovery, which basically you've uh, more or less seen the Hurricanes play and then have an off day play, have an off day. Uh, and so for more insight on that, we'll be joined in progress at some point during this podcast. We're not sure when, whenever he finishes his workout. He's winning the day right now. By uh, 
our good friend. This is Bill Bernstein coming to you live from the Canes locker room. Which he actually will be doing. Yes, that's exactly what he'll be doing. Uh, so we'll hear from him, uh, should be rather shortly. Um, but yeah, looking back on those those two games in Nashville, I think you start to get worried if the Hurricanes, um, if their chances aren't there. Yep. If, the, if the process that they established in the regular season that, that clearly is successful isn't there. But I think what you saw, especially in game four, um, was the Hurricanes uh, really playing their game um, and doing so uh, on the road in a hostile environment. But UC Saros was good. I think, you know, when it, when it shifted back here to Raleigh for game five, the Hurricanes really came off their game in the first half of that third period. And that was really the worrisome stretch. Um, and Rod Brindamore, Rod Brindamore identified it during a commercial timeout, yeah. let his bench know, and the Hurricanes came out a couple shifts later and, and tied the game. But to me, those two games in Nashville, the Hurricanes had built themselves, um, you know, some wiggle room with, with two wins here. And, of course, um, it, home teams win their games in the playoffs. It, it's not a series until the road team wins a game. Exactly. Um, and, you know, it's going to be the end of the series if the road team wins the game. Uh, in game six, uh, but the Hurricanes, uh, you know, I, I, I thought what they, the games that they played in Nashville, the, the, the process, it was, it was all there. Um, it was just, could they be a little sharper? Maybe uh, you look at that power play in overtime in game four, silver platter opportunity to win it. It was the only power play opportunity in either overtime and they couldn't connect. Uh, the power play gets one in game five, and that's that's a huge goal. Um, so I, my takeaways from those two games are just, you know, it just didn't happen. The Hurricanes couldn't panic too much because what they were doing, I thought, was, you know, on the whole, results aside, yep. pretty solid. Oh, I thought they played two very good road games yep. with a chance to win without Jacob Slavin in the lineup. Right. So, And you mentioned Max Lajoie. Never played a playoff game, Stanley Cup playoff game. Uh, in his career, and he gets thrown into that powder keg of emotion and that raucous atmosphere in Nashville and handled himself just fine. Oh, I, yeah. You know, fit right in. and um, But, of course, there's no replacing Jacob Slavin. Even with Brett Pesci playing 40 minutes a game, Brady Shea playing close to 40 minutes, there's no replacing the type of just staunch defense and steady play that Jacob Slavin can provide. And that was... Again, center stage in game five. He does so many things that you don't notice until they're gone. He and Brett Pesci, the same right. same kind of player as far as they don't necessarily make highlight real plays. They're capable of doing it. Of course, Brett Pesci did with that huge game-tying goal in game number three in Nashville. But I look at how they play and how they defend they block shots. They get sticks on pucks. They're always in the right position. They don't throw thunderous hits. They're not guys who are the old-school model of defensemen where they're going to put their opponent through the boards and, and run everybody every chance they get. They're the new school of defense, which is proper positioning, yeah. thinking the game, putting the pucks in the right places. That It's, it's not sexy highlight-wise, but my goodness, is it effective, especially the way that the game is played 
and Slavin. The funny thing is, he announced his presence in game number five with a hit yeah. on Luke Cunning. Yeah. His first shift of the game. Tossing so. his weight around along the near boards and just the little plays all over the ice that he makes, you know, whether it's on the penalty kill, just a simple stick to get in a passing lane and puck ends up at the other end of the ice, or even look at the game winning goal. You know, he sort of protects the puck around yep. um, Nashville player, is able to go D to D to Brett Pesci, neither get an assist on the play because UC Saros, I guess, technically played the puck. Yeah. Um, but, you know, without the plays that those two make, Jordan Stahl never gets a chance to to have a whack at that puck. So little things that just, you know, might not show up on the score sheet. And Jacob Slavin did get on the score sheet um, with the assist on Martin Natchez's uh, game-tying goal in the third. But um, it was noticeable to have him back in the lineup. Look, I, I understand, and we cover the Carolina Hurricanes we do? And, oh, yeah, we do. Okay. It is called Kane's Cast, I yes. believe. I think this is episode 177. Yeah, we've done a lot of them. So considering there's 52 weeks in a year, we do one just about every week. Just about. My math is not good, but that is over three years of this podcast we've yeah, done. Mine neither, but I think you're right. Uh, to that, Rod Brindamore and company over these last three seasons – have said the most important thing, which is we worry about what we do, yes. not what the other team does. But I do have to give some credit to Nashville. And oh, in yeah. particular, that game five, that's as almost flawless of a road game you can play until they get rattled after the Natchez goal. And then you could really feel the ice tilt. And look, the Canes were doing what the Canes do. They get shots on goal. They have puck possession time. But it, it it's funny, it didn't feel like a typical Canes kind of tilting the ice for those first two periods, even though the shots on goal would tell you that the chances would tell you that. Yeah. But it, it was the scoreboard that told the story And right. Nashville. I hate to say it was a rope a dope, but they absorbed and they counterattacked. Yeah. And they got the, the opportunities when they did. And, you know, you score a goal 53 seconds into a period. You know, that's, that's a, a tough bounce, but Again, this Canes team, resilience is the word. Right. It was on the towels at PNC Arena. Very for the fans. appropriate. Uh, absolutely, and they showed it again. And that's the amazing thing for me. And this year, I, I don't think I could be happier for an individual player than what I am for Jordan Stahl. Mm -hmm. That finally the acknowledgement of what kind of player he is because the stats follow the player that he is for the first time, it seems like in people's minds here in Carolina. But this is the same player he's been since he got dealt here and signed that contract extension. Same player. And I am over the moon that the hockey world is like, oh, yeah, Jordan Stahl is really good at hockey. No, he's been really good at hockey. And leading this team by example, when they need it, he's there. He's their horse. Put the saddle on, and giddy up. Here he goes, and that goal to stick with it, to bat it out of the air, and to end game number five. I'm gonna put some cards on the table. I guess I could say be real, but just cards on the table. Okay. If the Canes would have lost last night two to one, this would have been a very depressing podcast. It would not have been the same because the Canes would have lost three games in a row in this series, but. I would have come out and said, you know, there's still two games left. 
Yeah. Uh, the, the Hurricanes were in each and every one of these games. There's nothing that leads me to believe that Carolina can't win the next two games of the series, even though they have to win one in Nashville. That would have been my belief. When the Canes tied it and the building goes nuts and it goes to overtime, the thought didn't really creep in until, it's funny, the game was over, and then I had the thought of, wow, if the Canes would have lost this game in overtime, three in a row in overtime, I don't know how game six would have gone. That would have been pretty crushing uh, as would have playing you know the entirety of that third period the way they had played the first 11 minutes and change because it just wasn't their game they were down two to one in a third period of a tied series at home they were getting outshot five to two and that's just not that's not the hurricanes yeah. game uh and so to see that unfolding uh if that would have transpired the same way yeah it would have been that would have been pretty crushing yeah. too um but you had to figure a bounce was going to go their way eventually uh, in, in these overtimes, um, and it did. You know, Jordan Stahl didn't get all of that puck, uh, but he got just enough to, to bounce it in, you know, through Soros. And um, you know, one of those uh, images that's going to live on, you know, highlight reels for, for years to come is, you know, as he turns and in the corner and his patented sort of yell, that guttural emotion and... Um, and just the bear hugs in the corner. Um, it was great to see. And I think it gives this Canes team just that shot of confidence that they need to go back to Nashville and in this series. Uh, see, I, I think they had the confidence all along. I, I think if, well, I, I, think know, they, I know what you're saying. I though. think they did, but they needed a bounce in one of these overtimes to say, okay, the, you know, this is, the process works. This is the way we have to play. We can win a game like this in overtime. They needed something like that, especially after losing two straight in double overtime. Can we also say, even though he has scored a postseason goal, but it's his first multi-goal postseason game. Hello, Marty Natchez. Hello. I mean, How are you? Hi. That, that goal, we've seen it against Columbus. Oh, yeah. But that goal to try to pull that off in that game the way it was going and to recognize, and he said it after the game when he had the first star interview with uh, Trip Tracy, that's what I heard. He saw that Saros was off the post, felt he could get there, had a step, and did it. I understand that Andre Svechnikov's lacrosse goal is a marvel and a thing of beauty, and how do you do it? And something Nate just has tried this year, too. Yes, he has. But I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know how many guys in the league can score that goal that Marty Natchez has put in the net it's a pretty. few times this year. Well, it takes it there, takes. There's, there's only one guy. There's only one guy who I can. Connor McDavid. Yeah. He's yeah. the one guy where I'm like, I, no hesitation in saying he could score that goal. Well, because that's like, you know, watching Marty Natchez kind of turn the engines on and start motoring through the neutral zone is kind of reminiscent of Connor McDavid. Now Connor McDavid is quicker and bigger and stronger and all those things. But the way Natchez gets his feet moving and can just blow past defenders. I mean he Philip Forsberg was flat footed. Yeah. He had no chance. No. Ryan Johansson was just kind of reaching. Oh, with there's his no chance. No, no chance. chance. Matt Duchesne was already a step behind him and he was, you know, at basically at his side. Uh he had no chance either. And yeah, hey, we we've seen that goal before, and as soon as he started motoring through, and Matt Benning was in front of him and had no chance, no, no chance at all, and Ben Harper was on the ice, and he didn't have a prayer, but 
as soon as he starts motoring up through the ice and you see Soros kind of leaning to his left and, you know, thinking Natchez might just fire off a shot there from the right wing, um, I kind of had the thought, well, he might try it. And sure enough, he's, uh, you can tell that's something that he's kind of perfected. And that was an unreal way to tie uh, game five of the first round. Um, you know, in a period where, again, the Canes did not have their game going. But that that goal sparked them. And after that, they were able to, to rediscover their game and put pressure on the Predators. Um, and from there, you kind of just, well, you I figured the Hurricanes would win after that. But again, once you get to overtime, you sure. never know. And then the Predators get an early power play. The Canes had an early power play again in game four in overtime. Weren't able to connect. Um, and then they draw a penalty and, and Jordan Stahl is able to connect four on four. Big win at home for the Hurricanes. Resilience. Um, and really, if you look at any of these games, look back at game three. The resilience in game three of, uh, of again, a team that's down in the third period and Brett Pesci is is able to tie the game. Uh, by the way, for the 47 seconds of the penalty on Brady Shea, the Canes penalty killers were top shelf again, like they have been the entire series. Yep. I believe right now, as far as the power plays go for the Canes, they have killed off 20 of 22. Sounds right. Because it was seven of 17 of, of 19 coming into game number five. But, Michael, the, the thing about that game last night there's a, a statistical anomaly for me the four goals scored in regulation there were only four assists total only primary assists and then as you mentioned in the overtime they'll take away the assists for Brett Pesci which I, I disagree with Slavin. but whatever and Jacob Slavin which would have moved Slavin into the all-time leader in assists for defensemen in franchise history for playoff assists uh, he tied that mark last night uh, it's a little odd that they're not awarding it because, yes, UC Soros, I guess, played the puck on the Brett Pesci shot. He did sure. play the puck. He knifed at it, and it did. That's what caused yeah. it to pop in the air. And that's so. what, yeah, that's what caused uh, the opportunity for Jordan Stahl to have the deflection. I mean, that's how it's supposed to be scored, so there's no argument with that. I do want to bring up one thing. And, look, the Canes won, so this is not meant to be sour grapes. This is a – I kind of want to – approach this from the, the point of let's make things a little bit better for the rule book so people don't lose their mind. There's nothing I hate more in the world than hearing the chant of the refs aren't good from fans in any building. Is that what they're saying? Uh, more or less. More or less. <laughs> because it is the hardest sport to officiate, bar none. How fast the sport moves. Yep. And these guys get the calls – Right, 99% of the time. 97. 90. Uh, but still, 90. Nine, 9 out of 10 calls are right. But 69%. That would be nice, but would be. not a very good percentage as far as no. being accurate. Uh, but still a good batting average. I, I just Let's just say 9 out of 10. Okay. 10 calls, 9 they get right. The one they miss, everybody thinks these guys should lose their job and nobody knows what they're doing. It is so hard to officiate the game. But what I'm trying to drive at is 
help these guys out a little bit. I think that's what, like, everybody losing their minds over Rod Brindamore being upset after game three when two consecutive games, the Nashville Predators had a 7-3 power play advantage. Rod Brindamore was not saying that the referees were making up calls against the Carolina Hurricanes. That wasn't the intent. That wasn't the point. The point is these two teams are evenly matched. They're doing the same things. So if one team has seven penalties and the other team has three, where are the other four on that team? Yeah. that's That was his point. Yeah. And he wasn't singling out one official or a group of officials. He was just bringing up the point of this is how this game is played. Or even one call over the other. Exactly. Just... And he never said that the penalties that the Canes were called for weren't. Right. That, to me, is when people start talking about, oh, ripping officials, it wasn't about the calls that were made. It's about the calls that aren't. Yeah. And I will 100% back those comments from Rod Brindamore because if I'm a player, I want my coach to stand up for me. If I'm in the front office, uh, if there's anything that comes extra from the league for those comments, I'll gladly handle that because I want my coach to defend the organization. And if I'm a fan, that's what I'd want to have happen. And, and earlier this week, I was on a uh, Nashville radio station. They asked me about the situation. And I said, if the shoe is on the other foot, wouldn't you want John Hines to do the same thing? Right. Or are you going to sit there and say, well, that we wouldn't do that? No, you absolutely want it. And I'll tell you what, if I'm a guy in the locker room and my coach won't do that, now I have some problems. How come you're not helping us out here? So that's why, with with the whole penalty thing, let me go in the Rod Brindamore role for this for a second. Help these guys. Give them an opportunity to look at a call. I mean, they, they slow down and huddle up anyway for certain calls. Give them a chance or give coaches a chance to say, there's a high stick, you missed it. Yeah. And we, we've got it on tape. Can you, can you look at it? And the other thing, uh, they've got to do something about goaltender interference. And... and uh, look, I know it's easy for us to say it the day after uh, Jacob Slavin's goal was taken off of the board that would have tied the game at two and bring this up. I think we've said this all year. Michael, you tweeted it. I read your tweet. You said, well, this goal should come off. This goal should stay on the stay on the board. Yeah. And then your next tweet I, was, oh. I said out loud, oh, that's a bad challenge. Like, the Hurricanes have tied the game. Now they're going to get a power play. Trip Tracy. Analyst for the Canes broadcast, and my on-air Kaniac. partner, huge Kaniac. He said that this is a risky challenge because, yes. you know, the goal should stand. And now if you're John Hines, you've put yourself in the penalty box here. Right. Momentum Canes. I looked at it, and the only thing I was looking for was did Warren Fogle, when he made contact, when he got into the crease, if there was mm -hmm. contact, like did his elbow hit? Soros in the head, something. Mm -hmm. That's what I was looking for. Like knock him off position or something, yeah. Didn't see any of that. No. The man who impeded UC Soros from making the play was the captain of the Nashville Predators, Roman Yossi. That's correct. That's who stopped Soros from getting... This is the, the way I look at it. Puck went off Jordan Stahl's skate, I think. I think I think it would have, or I'm not sure if it went off of Stahl's or if it was Johansson, because Stahl and Johansson were tied up in the front of the net. There was all sorts of traffic. At, at first, I thought Jesper Faust, if you go back my call, I thought Faust got to it. At first, I didn't know who it hit. I just knew it hit something because there were six bodies in front of the net. And a shot like that doesn't get through without taking some sort of funny bounce. Um, but you look at the replay. And to make the save, and first of all, Rod Brindamore made the point that he's probably not making the save anyway because it's such a weird bounce. But 
Anyway, we digress. To make the save, Saros has to get to his left. The only person impeding his progress to move laterally is Roman Yossi. Warren Fogel is at the top of the crease. He would have impeded him to move forward. Yes. To come out and make a save. Is there some contact at the top of the crease? Perhaps. And maybe that's why they call the goaltender interference. But that's not what prevented Saros from doing his job. What prevented Saros from doing his job is Roman Yossi coming in, trying to clear out Warren Fogel from in front of his goaltender. And then he ends up basically straddling his left leg, yep. and Saros goes to move left and can't because there's the Norris Trophy-winning defenseman in his way. But let me go back, and this is not intended to throw shade on the referees or say they need to do better. If you read the rule book. People will tell you it's black and white. It's not. It's gray. And then when you can take the calls away from the refs on the ice and go to a situation room in Toronto, and I know that I've just said help out the refs and give them a chance to look at certain calls, yeah. there needs to be a rewrite of goaltender interference because that wasn't, but it's been called that a few times in you can get into spirit of the rule, which I'm fine with, but this is a rule that should be black and white, and it is very gray because how Michael Smith looks at it and how I look at it, we can get two completely different views on if that was goaltender interference or not. And I, I love to bring up this point, if you'll allow me, with a little leeway, a sidebar here. All right. So I went to a broadcaster's meeting a few years ago, and the NHL was there, and they put up, 10 instances of goaltender interference. Mm -hmm. 10. And they're like, okay, we're going to show it. You tell us if it was goaltender interference or not. I got three right. <laughs> and and I wasn't the only one. Nobody nobody aced that test. <laughs> nobody went 10 for 10. Yeah, Everyone but, had to take the class over. But there was one, and I, I'll never forget it. It was a clear instance of the goaltender just got housed. Wow. Just run over, plowed into. And I'm like, well, if that's not goaltender interference, then I have no idea. They come out, no goal, no goaltender interference, and here's why. I'm like, nobody shoved the guy into the goalie. There was this and that, and they played it as, well, the goaltender put himself in that position to get hit. I'm like, but, but he, from the look, and he didn't. And I then said, I go, I have, I will have no idea what goaltender interference is or is not in this league anymore. And yeah. I don't. It's like... Uh, and neither does... The, this is the problem when you have a rule like that when the majority of your fan base doesn't know if it's a penalty or not. That's that's where you have to start thinking about we need to look at this rule. Yeah. Or what's a catch in the NFL? Oh. Which I think is a little cl more yeah, clearly they, defined now. Yeah, they've modified the, you know, the completion of the catch. Like a football move. All of those things, but... Look, Saros was not able to make a hockey move because of his own guy. But you can make this... Crystal clear, and look, I have been around this league long enough where when the crease was bigger, the blue paint was bigger, yeah. and you could have the toe of your skate on the left side of the crease, and the puck is on the right side, and it has nothing to do with it, and they'd wave the goals off, and that was ridiculous. It's like being offside 40 seconds before a goal. It, uh, it, well, if you're offside, you're offside. That's true. Uh, but that is like, true. But it, it, it should have stopped the play there. This is right. had nothing to do with the play. Yeah. Warren Fogle had nothing to do with stopping 
UC Soros from getting there. That's where no. this this that's where this rule needs to be revisited and revised. Yeah. Again, that's I think it's as easy as looking at it and saying, okay, where does UC Soros have to go to make this safe? Well, he's got to move to his left because that's where the shot's coming from. And he has a tough time yeah. seeing and reading the shot because there's he's also short. He's short and there's tons of guys in front of him. They're moving around and jockeying for position and um so, yeah, he has a tough time tracking the shot, but he's got to move to his left, and he can't because there's a guy in his way, and that guy is wearing the same color sweater as he is. So, if we were on the shoes on the other foot, yes, just so we're, we're clear, how would we be talking about this today? Probably not as passionately about it, but I would still tell you that this rule needs to have some kind of change because – it leaves so much up to other people's interpretation on what it is. For me, offside, you either are or you aren't, although it used to be ridiculous where they didn't raise the blue line. Thank right, goodness I, they did this this year. Where- yeah, that, that, I think, is is more clear now. And again, I do agree. If a play is offside, it's offside. It you know Whatever happens after that, even if it's 40 goal, seconds man. after, it should have been blown dead. But in, in this instance, just come up with, with a certain... The goaltender is bumped into and plays dead. Sorry, it's going to stink because it's going to bring, I think, way more whistles. Or you've got to revise what is impeding the goaltender's process. And it becomes, I hate to say a common sense thing, but what you just said, you laid it out perfectly, Michael. You see Saros needed to get to his left. The person stopping him from getting to his left was his own teammate. Goaltender interference on the Nashville Predators on the Nashville Predators. Yes. So I, I, I hope it's something that gets revisited. You, you mentioned, and luckily, and luckily it, you could put this in the, the back seat, although we've devoted some time to it now here on Canes Cast. Well, but you it, can put this in the back seat now because the Canes win the game. Yeah, I, it was inevitable that we'd have to devote some time to it because it was such a pivotal moment in the game. Um, you know, what what should have been the game-time goal in the second period ends up... Um, kind of throwing the Canes into some chaos, I think. I, I think it kind of affected them and, oh, yeah. and their game, and you saw it early in the third period. Um, and it is something that um, that needs to be revisited and needs to be discussed. And I would like to think um, that, uh, you know, we do like to do that, uh, you know, put the shoe on the other foot thing. And I would like to think that if, if you know, the Hurricanes had challenged that and, and had won the challenge and the goal comes off the board for Nashville, we'd be saying, oh, you know, the Hurricanes got away with one there because what's goaltender interference? Um, and that's, you know, that that's the, that's the way I think we would end up discussing it because um, we might not have devoted as much time to it. We might just be like, well, the Canes got away with one because um, that certainly wasn't goaltender interference. Um, yeah. But it's, you know, I guess credit to Nashville's coaching staff for – trying the challenge. I mean, it was a risky challenge because, again, you that's the game-tying goal, and then you risk giving the other team a power play. Yeah, Clearly, they saw enough, understood enough of the rule, you know, that they might have a shot, and, and sure enough, it, uh, it happened. And again, these things happen so fast in the NHL. Uh, I just wish rules would be written clear. That's really what I was hoping for. One other underlying thing for this series, though, right now, When you have three overtime games in a row, Michael, I think that this speaks to the conditioning that these athletes are in. 
because everybody asks, how are they doing it? Uh, the average fan, I'm so tired after these things, Will. How about a guy who's played like 105 minutes in the last three games? Brett Pesci, if you're wondering. Does he still have two human legs? Yes, he does. Okay. Or maybe, Have we confirmed that? Or maybe they're already bionic. We know somebody who can confirm that for us. Yeah. Just well, so let's talk know. to him. Can we talk to him? I think we can. I think he's done working out now. Yeah, I'm good with that. This is Bill Berniston coming to you live from the Canes locker room. Joining us here on Canes Cast, he just finished his workout. Because the early bird gets the worm, it's Bill Berniston. Bill, how was the workout? Workout was awesome today. Actually, uh, you know, had a good one within here. Uh, you know, one of the rare occasions that I actually beat Rod Brandemore into the gym, and I think I was here maybe uh, eight to ten minutes earlier than him. So, you know, that's a win for me. That's a pretty big accomplishment. Well, that is starting the day one and zero. What you did? You do some elliptical. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's an executive workout. Um, I actually got a little um, little work on, on the bike and then did some interval work. And then from there, I uh, did a little treadmill work. And then I got a lift in. Had to try to get a little pump in before uh, before some of the boys came in. Yeah, you got to get the pump in to make the, uh, make the arms look good. Look, no offense to you. You've got to get the, the weights in before Rod walks into the room because, let's face it, he can throw the whole rack on there. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> He's just an absolute beast. All right. Bill, we, we've talked about how important uh, strength and conditioning is. The proper nutrition is with you as uh, you are, uh, our, I believe, our longest tenured guest here on Kane's Cast, and we greatly appreciate it, especially in the middle of the playoffs. But let's get to the, the big question in the room. How, after three overtime games in a row, after just a, a double overtime game, does your job change at all about attacking how we're going to work out, how we're going to rest, the nutrition and the, the things that your athletes need, or is it always the same because you build up for these situations? Well, I think it's a little bit of, of, of all the above, Mike. You know, first of all, you know, there's no, you know, we're, we're a team here as well, right? So we have a, a whole, uh, whole group right so we have our nutritionist uh Kristen Perugi and then of course we have our training staff uh with Doug Bennett and um and Matty Aiello and just to be honest with you you know it, it's a collaborative approach so it, it's all about preparation for us as well so we assume that every game is going to go into is going to go into overtime so there's extra food in the locker room there's more snacks in the locker room we know that what, what our approach is going to be from a hydration standpoint, uh, you know, after the, the third period in the beginning of, um, you know, the first uh, the first overtime. So we know what our plan is, and we just try to get calories into to the players, right? But, you know, at this point in the season, from a strength and conditioning perspective, recovery and rest trump everything. So that's the most important thing for our guys. So we always train all year long to peak during this time of year. That doesn't mean that, you know, there aren't certain things that, you know, it's important for us. Like for instance, last night we got into the weight room post game, but our volume in the weight room was way down, but we still got our work in, right? So we, we lowered our number of sets. We know we lowered our number of reps, but we went a little bit heavier yesterday, you know, in in the weight just to make sure that we're maintaining our strength, um, you know, as we, we move forward. So, to be honest with you, it's everything that we've done up to this point 
we always talk, you know, you know how it is after a game or whenever it is. Guys are going to moan a little bit about getting in the weight room, but our guys are awesome. They're, they're, they're pros, and they know they need to do it. And anytime I hear those moans, you know, my response is always like, hey, boys, let's not peak now. You know, we want to peak, you know, in May and June this year. So that that's where, you know, our approach has been, and that's where it's going to continue to be. So right now, rest and recovery is trumping everything. And obviously, um, you know, being able to tap into the expertise of Kristen Perugia, um, you know, and, and talking to her, you know, what do we need our guys to have as far as meals and, and what have you. So all those things, you know, add up and you just try to continue to do the little things every day. So you look at uh, games three and four, double overtime each. Uh, you know, you have Brett Pesci, Brady Shea playing close to 40 minutes. What do those next days, you know, now that we're in a rhythm of play one day, uh, kind of rest and recovery the next day. What does that rest and recovery look like in between games that, that go into double overtime, deep into double overtime? Yeah, well, you hope those guys, you know, one, you want to make sure that they're they're hydrated, right? Because once you start getting behind, you know, in your hydration, it's it's very difficult to catch up. So our medical staff does a great job with that. And whether the guys need, um, you know, IVs or whatever it may be, you know, those guys are taking care of that end of it. And then making sure that they have proper nutrition. And obviously, you know, you want the guys to sleep. Uh, that that really is where most of our recovery is going to occur. So you want to make sure, one, they're hydrated. Two, they're getting enough calories back in them. And then, you know, three, you want to make sure that they're sleeping well. And then, of course, the next day is soft tissue work, uh, whether that's, you know, mobility, stretching, whether that's, um, you know, getting massage work from a massage therapist, uh, Mike Moraska. Um, you know, th- those are all, um, you know, options for our guys. So it's important, um, you know, not everybody's treated equally, right? I understand what you're saying from the standpoint of, you know, those guys that play big minutes. But, you know, they're, they're going to have a preference on what their recovery is going to be. We, we just, we're here to help them with that vehicle. And we have other we have options for them, and and we just help them, you know, along the way. Uh, so I can't say that every guy is going to be the same, um, but you know we have plenty of options here for them. Bill, for those guys who played those big minutes, and in particular Brett Pesci and, and Brady Shea, your job is to enhance them, make them a better athlete, and get them there. But when we start talking about endurance and, and doing things that we're wondering, how do they go over the boards for the next shift? How much of that is this is born in them? They have something special inside of them, either be it lung capacity or pain tolerance, whatever it is. How much of that is just a, a guy has to have that? You can coach it so much, but it's got to be in a guy in order to, to play through those sort of things. Yeah, Mike, I would say that, you know, it's hard to say, you know, are these guys more, you know, fast twitch or slow twitch or is they more endurance based? Um, that's hard to say. But I can promise you this, that those guys that you're talking about have a passion and they have a compete level like no other. And winning is important to them. And they're going to do whatever it takes to get that W. And I think that will is really you know, what What makes those guys go, what drives them. And they want to do it for themselves, they want to do it for their teammates, and they want to do it for the for the Caniacs, right? I mean, like, this is, 
this means something to these guys. And uh, I, I think that's what drives them above any genetics or anything along those lines. Bill, I think I know I'm asking you about things that, that probably can't be measured, but to that, I'm glad you just said what you said. How much is it the mentality uh, of an athlete? And you're around these guys, and is that, in your estimation, what separates somebody who could be good versus the ones who are good? They have that in their mindset. Uh, whatever it is, I'll get it done. I'll find a way to get it done. The Jersey guys, so to speak. A, a Jersey guy, if yeah, you Yeah, I love the Jersey guy. Um, yeah, that Jersey guy approach, right? A Jersey guy, you know, is going to do whatever it takes, you know, to win. And, you know, I, I say that, you know, growing up in New Jersey and, and uh, you know, being around, you know, my buddies that um, have lived by that, right? Like, we're, we're just, you know, I agree with you. I, I love that Jersey guy approach. And, you know, these guys that you, you can't measure certain things, as you said, Mike, right? Like we can look at, you know, all these statistics and, and everything along those lines and, and the analytics, but how do you measure grit? You know, how do you measure, you know, desire? How do you measure passion? How do you measure those things? They, they're tough, but I can promise you this, that everybody in this locker room has that and they're all pulling on the rope in the same direction and, it's it's really impressive and it's fun to be around. You uh, worked with Jordan Stahl, Vincent Trocheck, and and Jacob Slavin before the season, uh, and I feel like all three of them uh, have had or did have really good regular seasons. Um, do you take full credit for this? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I those thought you were going to say are... absolutely. <laughs> no, <laughs> honestly. It, we're the vehicle, right? We, we give guys, you know, you could design the program, and but if they're not doing it, it doesn't mean anything, right? And those three guys, and, and add Svetch in there, and, and Sebastian Ajo was here, and Peter Morazic came in, and there was, uh, you know, there were other guys here too, and just their compete level. So they came in the gym every day, and they worked their butts off. Like, they just worked you know i often say and i I probably even said on your podcast as well that you can you know actually you you have to put in the work right you can't stand in the weight room and think that you're going to get bigger faster and stronger You, you actually have to do the work right it's it's often i often say you know it's like sitting in a chicken coop and think you're going to turn yourself into a chicken it doesn't work right you got to make sure that you're putting in the work and those guys certainly did it, and they're just, uh, you know, they're, they're just great guys. And I love their compete, and I love what they bring every single day. And, you know, there are no, you know, off days, right? So even if you're not in the gym, you're recovering. You're doing all the things that you need to do to prepare yourself, you know, mentally and physically for the next workout. And that's what those guys do. And, and honestly, it makes my job so much easier because the only thing I have to do is design the program. And those guys are the ones who carry it out. So I, I honestly can't take any credit as much as I'd like to take credit, you know, and, uh, you know, but, but you can, it, it's all on those guys. And, and uh, it, to be honest with you, this was probably the best off season of my career, you know, being in the new facility, you know, being able to, to work with those guys. Um, it, it was just phenomenal. Well, I'll give you a little bit of credit. I'll give you a lot of credit if you want. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're the Jersey guy willing to sell his, his Firebird with the T-tops in order to get there to get the W. Yeah, but I definitely want my Van Halen CD. Well, you got to keep the CD. Come on. Jersey guys have it on cassette. 
Yeah, A-track. A-track. Uh, Bill, I want to circle back to something you talked about, how rest and recovery is key right now. Is there is there a rest and recovery period that's better? Like, get sleep. You know, go go to the dark room. No, no video games. No, nothing. That's not rest. That's that's just laying around. Is there a difference? And I guess that would be my question. Is there a difference between rest and laying around, which would be, I guess, would be counterproductive to trying to get ready to play a game again? Well, I think there's a, a fine line to it too, Mike. You know, when you're playing every other day, you, you have to have some downtime, and you have to be away from the the rink and away from the game just from a, a mental perspective, right? Like, it, that's really important. So, you know, one, I can tell you that recovery starts from the time the game's over. When, when guys come off the ice, you know, they have their post-game shakes in their stall, and, you know, nutrition starts, you know, within, you know, I would say, you know, two or three minutes right after the storm surge. As soon as they get in the locker room, you know, they're, they're already starting. So, you know, recovery starts right away, and then from that standpoint, um, you know, they'll they'll do whatever it we need to do post game. So whether that's you know getting some soft tissue work in, getting their their lift in, you know, so there's certain certainly active recovery and there's passive recovery. Um, so you know, like an example of a passive recovery would be you know sitting in the the cold tub or. Um, getting a massage or something along those lines. And an active recovery would be getting on the bike, um, you know, getting uh, some your heart rate up, doing some foam rolling on your own, all those types of things. So there are plenty of options for our guys, but I would still say that sleep trumps everything. Yeah, I agree. And I need more of it. Yeah, well, that's a choice for you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sometimes, like, uh, you know, like last night when it goes into overtime and work until the wee hours of the morning, sometimes it just, sometimes you just have to power through. You know what? Jersey guys don't complain about it. Jersey yeah, guys you just know, I'll be done. honest with you. I, I was up today, you know, moving around. I think I, I rolled in last night about 1 o'clock, probably similar to you, except I didn't have to write an article like you did. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I rolled in about 1 and... You know, it's we're we're just built by habit too. So I agree with you on the sleep thing. Um, we'll we'll catch a little bit today on the plane. I know it's only an hour flight. Exactly. Um, you know, and and tonight we'll get to bed early. Uh, but you know, I I think this morning, you know, we're up before the alarm clock goes off, and I think it was up before before six o'clock. And you know, you just like okay, you know, you ramp for the day. I I get it. You know, it's it's tough. I I, I hope that these guys get a little bit more you know, sleep, um, you know, at home. I know it's tough for some of them, you know, with their kids. And especially, you know, we're going on the road again and they want to make sure that they get up and see their kids off to school or whatever it may be, just spend a little bit of family time together. But, you know, hopefully, you know, they'll make up for it. Um, You know, any type of sleep debt that they might have, they can make up for it tonight. Do you find it's tough to wind down too after – the adrenaline of an overtime game, especially a, a double overtime game? From a player's perspective or, or, or well, personal? Either way. I mean, from a personal perspective, I have trouble shutting my brain off, but, you know, I'm also doing, you know, writing an article and stuff. But I, I do wonder from your perspective or from a player's pers- perspective if it's kind of the same thing, if the, if the brain is just kind of on and, and, and going still and it's kind of tough to shut it off. 
Yeah, I think, you know, from a player's perspective, I think those guys have a really hard time shutting it down. Uh, I, you know, or a lot of them do, right? So it's going to take them, you know, two to two and a half hours post game just to really unwind and, and be able to get that, um, you know, their, their heart rate down, their, their adrenaline, all those types of things. Yeah. You know, personally, for me, you know, I sleep much better after a win than yes. I do uh, <laughs> a loss, um, it, particularly, you know, losses in, in overtime, I, I take extremely personal. You know, I, I just, you know, what what could have I done better to prepare these guys? You know, what, and that's how I am with, with any loss. Yeah. You know, um, it's it certainly, you know, it's something that I think is what drives me. So I don't want it to ever go away. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, not quite sure there's, there's a whole lot you know, we can do to change. Um, but I still like the fact that, you know, that's our mindset. Bill, last thing for me, for you on this, um, how weird and how difficult this year has been for everybody dealing with all of the protocols and how many people can be in a room at the same time and all this. Would maybe one of the advantages, say, like on a day like today, I think we're, we're all going to be happy when we don't have to have Zoom conferences anymore in that. But in a day like today, if you're going to have a team meeting, could it be an advantage or at some point in the season that the guys don't have to get up, get dressed, drive into a building and then drive back home. They can stay home and, and watch a meeting through zoom and, and kind of have that rest instead of, you know, kind of stirring themselves to get to a place only to go back home. Was that, could you view that as an advantage or it's, it's negligible at this point? No, I think that that's something that's going to come out of this pandemic is the fact that, you know, maybe we don't need to, to do, you know, all these in-person meetings, you know, and you can do, because of technology and, you know, we have uh, great video coaches, you know, Chris Huffman does an unbelievable job. And, you know, with technology, you can, you know, really accomplish those things with guys sitting at home. Um, and, and I think that is without question an advantage. And it's, it's more from a mental perspective right? Because even if you have to come into the rink for a meeting, you still have to come into the rink. And if you could do it at home, I think that that really gives players some mental rest. Uh, even if it's a, a 15 or 20 minute you know, meeting on Zoom, I, I, but they're doing it from the comfort of their home, I, I think that's a game changer. So I'm, my hope is that we continue to do that. And that'll certainly, you know, guys now, we still need to come in and get tested. Um, so, you know, they're already at the rink. So, yeah. you know, having a, a meeting, you know, here is probably uh, not as big of a deal as it will be once we don't have to be tested on a daily basis and you guys can stay home and do the meeting. So to answer your question, Mike, I think it's going to be a huge advantage for, for the players and, you know, from a mental standpoint. Oh, Bill, I hope you and Mike have a very good sleep on the flight back home from Nashville on Thursday. I'll be awake before we take off. And then you'll be yeah. asleep the well, second you get in the air. Or, yeah, asleep, I mean. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, Bill, I'm not even on the plane with you guys anymore, and I know that Michael Smith is asleep before the, the plane even starts to taxi down the runway. Well, it, it depends, because sometimes he's plugging away. I watch him type his – I sit uh, actually behind Mike, and – you know, he's plugging away. I, I don't know if he's always sleeping. He's a, This guy's like a workhorse, you know, and, you know, because 
I, I always kind of like look at our players. Um, you know, you have, you know, thoroughbreds, you have hybrids, and you have the plow horse, right? Yeah. And I, I got to be honest with you. I think Mike Smith is more like a, a plow horse. This guy's a worker. Absolutely. He's a Clydesdale. You put the back yeah. on him and he'll get it done. No doubt. No Absolutely. Doubt. I love to hear it, Bill. Win, win the day, Bill Berniston. Go uh, one and oh. Well, you're already yeah. one and oh, but now continue to win the day. I'll slip you that $20 bill later. Yeah, you guys as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bill, Talk to you guys later. thanks a lot. All right, Bill. And, uh, he yeah, thanks for having me, guys. See you on the plane. All right. Thank you. For our thanks to Bill Berniston for illuminating us for about 20 minutes yeah. with uh, with all the ins and outs of rest and recovery, especially in this stretch where the Hurricanes have, uh, again, essentially played an extra game of hockey in, in, the, in the span of three games. Are you sure that you're already not asleep, not knowing when you're – because you said, I'm already awake when the plane takes off, and I've been on enough of these flights with you to know that's just not true. I've been asleep for this whole podcast. Yeah, well, yeah. here we I, are. Hopefully our listeners haven't. <laughs> Let me put it in these terms, though. We talk about how Rod Brindamore doesn't take credit – for the success of this team. Yeah. Bill Berniston doesn't take credit for the success for what he has done to get these players to be able to play through two consecutive double overtimes, head to another one, and be in great shape. The one thing that the Carolina Hurricanes are are an absolutely fit team. They are equipped to play overtime, double overtime, more if needed. Hopefully not on Thursday with the 9.30 start, Eastern time. Hey, it's 8.30 for you, Central, so you'll be somewhat. Now, you'll still be on Eastern time. I know what that's like. It's going to be bad. But again, for the coaching staff, it it starts at the top. And if your leaders are the ones who set the example the way that Rod Brindamore does, it's easy to follow, just like Jordan Stahl. And I don't know if Bill is going to be happy with me uh, divulging this, but he sent us a, a text with a T-shirt that he got, and on the back of it, he put seven steps for what the Canes need to do. His son got it for him for his birthday. And it was his birthday recently, and he's uh, 21 years old. It says, hardest worker in the room. You got to love the process. That's number seven. Number six, work harder than stall, which I don't know how many people on this planet can do that. I don't know if that's possible. So, But again, that's what you talk about. That's what you have to strive to be. With... These guys not taking credit. Jordan Stahl will not take credit for how he has led this team this year, led by example. The season he said, it's always someone else. It's always his teammates. It's always the coaches putting him in the right position. If you want to know why the Canes won the Central Division, why they're one win away from advancing in the playoffs for the third consecutive year, and last year you can call it the qualifier, but they advanced in the NHL postseason, the Stanley Cup playoff postseason last year. They won a postseason series. It's because it's a group of guys who are selfless, and it's all about the team and what can I do to help the team win, and that's why uh, this team is in this position right now. Can't wait to get to it. Uh, And uh, honestly, this is the time where I wish uh, the protocols were different and the broadcasters were traveling with the team. So would love to be there in Nashville. We know you'll be there. We also know that there are some callers who love to take part of – this fine, fine podcast. And to do that, all you have to do, if you want to be part of Kane's Cast, brought to you by Stormbrew, the fine sponsor of this podcast, is call 919-500-Stephen Lorenz, Dougie Hamilton. Yep, that's 919-500-7819. For those of you who aren't 
up to speed with your jersey numbers. Hi, guys. First-time caller, long-time listener. I wanted to get your take on something that occurred to me listening to you guys' last Kane's cast. Um, I listened to it on the 21st. Um, what do you guys think about the impact of the growing area in population on the cane? Um, obviously, it's good for the cane, but um, I personally have only lived here seven years, and I've been a long time Penn's fan. I grew up in the Pennsylvania area, but I have been converted to a cane fan. So, um, and I'm sure there's lots of people in the area, especially in Cary, huh, that um, are New York fans that have been converted to Canes fans. But um, how do you think the growing area, continually growing area, will affect the Canes fan base and what the Canes do in the Raleigh area? Um, keep up the good work, guys, and uh, moi moi. Oh, we didn't get the name, but yeah. Great call. Thank you. And longtime listener, too. And first-time caller, which we do approve of. Great question. Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's only going to be a positive because oh, yeah. the more people in an area, uh, the more people can become fans of, of what's here. And right. it doesn't take long living in Raleigh to be a fan of the weather for the most part. Except uh, the humidity. Yeah, the humidity can be a they bit They can much. kick rocks. And, and the pollen, but that's not the weather. That's Ooh, uh, Yeah, the pollen, too. That's a time of year, pollen season. Uh, no, thank you. We'll no. Yeah, unsubscribe from that and humidity. And, I mean, but, you know, you can't have paradise all the time. I suppose not. I think having more people here means there's more people who can come into the building, mm -hmm. get loud, be yep. part of that. I will honestly also go to, to this route. If you're moving here from another place... And you've been a fan of, like, if you're 25, 35, look, if you've been a fan of a team for 40 years, I've never understood this. The second you move someplace else, you have to become a fan of the team of the area you move to, which, by the way, when I've asked people who live in an area for 40 years, if you move someplace else, would you then be a fan of that team? Hell no. So, I mean, I don't get why it, it has to be that one-way street. But I've always been big on the compromise. Like, if you're, she mentioned Carrie which I think we all know what that means around around here. Uh, for those who don't live in Raleigh and listen to uh, the Canes cast from out of town, Cary, for whatever reason, seems to be a geographical location that a lot of people from New York have decided to move to. Yes. What is it, concentrated area of relocated Yankees? That's correct. And it's funny because I haven't seen any New York Yankee who lives in Raleigh. No, I'm sure they do, but I, I have, so that's why. Uh, Jeter's not around no, here. No, he's not, Derek Jeter's not in Raleigh. Don Mattingly's not in Raleigh. No. Just, they're both, Mariano they're Rivera. Not, not in Raleigh. Raleigh. They're actually, they're actually in Miami. Well, Rivera, I believe, is in the Dominican Republic. But um, I think it's, I think it's great. I think it'll grow the game. And I, like I've said, I've, I've always been a fan of the compromise. So let's say it's, you're an Islanders fan. There, there are some of those. You want to cheer for the Islanders? That's fine. You want to cheer for the Canes 78 games a year? Sure. Take it to 78 games when yeah. we get back to an 82-game schedule. Yeah. I, I, Raleigh's, you know, especially now with uh, with Apple, you know, announcing a new campus. Uh, That's it, just going to bring in more people here. Exactly. It, it, Raleigh is going to continue to grow. Um, and with that, the Hurricanes fan base is going to continue to grow as well. And then what happens is the people who move here, they have kids. Right. Those kids... They won't be Islander fans 
they'll be Hurricanes fans. And they'll play hockey, maybe. And yes. they'll join youth hockey programs, which we've seen, uh, you know, the, the tremendous growth uh, of, of youth hockey in the last 20 years in this area. So it's all going to lead, uh, you know, to, to one day where, you know, the NHL draft and it's kids from, from Raleigh, North Carolina getting drafted. And that's, you know, more commonplace, yep. you know, that's more the, the trend than it is the outlier. Uh, so yeah, it's it, it, a growing area is, is, is great. And uh, a good team along with that uh, is just going to bring in more and more fans. Yeah, so great question. And, and I constantly remind everybody, uh, the man who scored 41 goals in 56 games this year was born in Phoenix, Arizona. That'd be yes. Austin Matthews if you don't know. So there's no reason why the best player in the National Hockey League or an elite player in the NHL one year won't come from Raleigh. And considering I know the youth programs around here and how Shane Willis runs the Junior Hurricanes program and it is one of the best in North America, I'm not going to be surprised one day when we hear the first overall pick in the NHL draft from Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah, thanks for that call. Uh, and again, 919-500, Stephen Lorenz, Dougie Hamilton. That is 919-500-7819. Hey, Mike and Michael, it's Holland again. Um, I know that this is the Canes cast, but I really think I need to hear some other opinions on um, the Tavares incident, um, just watching some some playoff hockey while the Hurricanes are traveling to Nashville. And the Tavares incident with um, the Canadians was really scary. Uh, prayers up to John Tavares. Um, but I, I want to get your thoughts on how it was handled afterwards by both, you know, the Leafs and more specifically Nick Foligno, um, you know, going at Corey Perry, you know, ma making him answer the bell for something that to me looked completely unintentional and a freak accident. And Corey Perry even went over to him, you know, when he was being stretchered off the ice and, you know, said, you know, my bad, I'm sorry. It was, I, to me, it was definitely a freak accident. I just want to hear your take on uh, how it was handled by the Leafs and Nick Foligno afterwards. One way. But it is the playoff edition of, of Kane's cast as well. Yeah. So, And it's we talk hockey and other sure. things, so I think it's fair game. No, so it's a, it's a really good call and a good question and if I, Holland. If I remember correctly, it's Holland from Kerry. Yes. And I, right maybe we here. have a, a Kerry in Holland listening. Ooh. If, if you are, 919-500. <laughs> Stephen Lorenz, Dougie Hamilton. Let us know. <laughs> All right. Uh, Toll free, by the way. Yeah, so we, we got a chuckle there, but it's a serious situation. Yeah. First off, the good news is John Tavares is, for what we've been told, did not suffer anything structurally wrong to his his head, his neck. He's released comments about, you know, he's doing better. Uh, I, I would be very surprised even if the Leafs make it to the Stanley Cup final, uh, which if they do, that's great for them. I'll be very surprised if we see John Tavares play this postseason again. Just they may not even of, make it out of the north. Uh, ex exactly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's quite obviously a concussion, and I think he – Hurt his knee at some point in that yeah, game the, as well. The, the hit, the hit that put him on the ice was a knee to knee. Mm -hmm. uh, and the funny thing was initially, when I was told, "Oh, Corey Perry hits John Tavares and it's not good." Right. Uh, the first thing I see is the knee to knee hit, and I'm like, "Well, that's not Corey Perry who hits him," or you know, they, his legs get locked up, and then you see Perry. There's nothing Corey Perry could do to really avoid absolutely nothing because that was just. I hate to use this, but it was a series of unfortunate events for everyone involved. You know, it's 
Tavares has to be hit and fall the way that he falls, and Perry has to be leaving the zone because the puck has got to be going that way. And it was not intentional, and everybody knows that. And Nick Foligno knew it. Yeah. Um, if if you watch the post game, l- look, I know that, and I want to. I don't want to tread lightly here. I want to. I kind of want to defend both sides of this, and it's hard to do. Yeah, because I think Holland is looking for a definitive answer. What Nick Foligno said after the game, and he he stepped up and answered all the questions. They said, well, why did you feel that you had to fight Corey Perry? It's an accident. It's this. It's this. As Nick Foligno said, that's our captain on the ice. Right. And I didn't like seeing that. I don't think that Corey Perry did it on purpose. But if we can't have our captain get stretchered off and then just sit there and be like, okay. Right. So did you have to fight Corey Perry? Absolutely not. No. There's. I don't think there was a reason to do what Felino did. I understand his logic, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm trying to give Felino oh. some benefit of the doubt. Here. I, yeah, I understand where he's coming from. Is it totally necessary? No. no. And it's also, I hate to do this, but reputations do matter. Right. Corey Perry has a reputation. That's the thing. Like, it's, it is Corey Perry. And I think if someone had the chance to drop the gloves with them, they they might accept that. And and this is where if you watch that fight and this kind of goes back to uh, look Corey Perry he handled himself as as well as any human being could in that situation. Yeah. He said it made him sick to his stomach. Yeah. He felt terrible. If you watch Felino and Perry are talking to each other and Felino's like we're going to go and Perry kind of is like are we really going to do this? Yeah. And Shea Weber if you watch the captain of the Canadian skates over and he sees this going on and he and Felino talk and Felino says something to Weber and Weber skates away instead of, you know, cause Shea Weber's a big boy. He can handle himself too. He's a big fella. Corey Perry knew it was coming. You could see before the face off, the gloves are coming off. Yeah. Takes the gloves off. Corey Perry does not throw a punch in that contest. He takes a couple of shots. Felino really could have gone. I think Felino realized what Perry was doing. It's done. You move on and move forward with it. Uh, yeah. Do I agree with it? No. Yeah. It's but a, I, it's that you know antiquated code. Yes. You know, it players shouldn't have to get into a fight when something bad like, happens. When when an accident happens or or a clean hit, yeah. like you shouldn't have to fight for a clean well, hit that's either. The thing I don't know if anybody knows what a clean hit is yeah, anymore. That's... Like a big hit is not always right. Dirty. Yeah. Sometimes they're just massive hits. Like, exactly. If guys, there are guys in the league who are big and they hit hard and, and they move fast they and move. it's a collision sport. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of with you. It's, I, it, it, it wasn't necessary at all. No. I get where Felino's coming from. I do, but you know, I, this is, this is a great question because there's, there's not a, a right answer. And I think Michael and I are struggling with trying to say Nick Felino has a point yeah and and i think to an extent he does because he has a point but there was no need for a fight right and i think that where i get hung up on that was there was no reason to tell Corey perry you're gonna have to fight yeah because our captain got knocked out and it was your knee right it, it just happened to be that Corey perry was skating up the ice at that exact time that Tavares hit the ice and they could like it's it's there is nothing 
either of them could have done differently no. to avoid what happened. No. And it was a scary situation, and seeing John Tavares in that situation was scary. And and I get, you know, also it's the Leafs captain and, and all of this. And, too, I, I do wonder if, if it factors in for Felino. You know, this is his new team. Yep. He kind of wants to well, I think make it does. an impression. Yeah. And, again, he was the captain of the Columbus Blue Jackets. Right. And his thought might have been, if that's me, would somebody, you know, step up and do things like that? And, Michael, you used the perfect word, this code, where it can be antiquated. There's so many sports that have so many unwritten rules and codes. There are things I hate about unwritten rules. Look, baseball, the whole thing about I'm going to hit a guy. uh, If he hits a home run on me, I'm going to hit him with a pitch. Well, if I hit a guy with a pitch and I don't have good control, I could end his career, or I'm going to, you know, park him on the injured list for a long time because uh, baseballs can break bones in case people aren't aware. They're not soft. No, they're not. I've been hit by quite a few of them, mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel good uh, in, a, in a game, not uh, just not watching just randomly. random in life. <laughs> uh, but in in this situation, it would have, I wish. That's kind of my reaction, just a, a sigh. Yeah, I wish Felino didn't go down the road of a fight. I didn't yeah. think that that was necessary, but I also don't want to paint Nick Felino as this goon right. who was looking for ultimate retribution. I think he was, as Michael, you brought up the point. This is the captain. He's a former captain. He yeah. was brought to Toronto to give them this element that they were supposedly missing of being a little tougher to play against and things like that. And Nick Felino did what he felt he had to do. If this is the old West, you know, so I did what I had to do. Yeah. It's a it's a very complex situation with a lot of factors at play. I'm sure Corey Perry's kind of reputation factors into this. If, you know, like if, I, I wonder if it's if it's you know, anybody besides Corey Perry. You know, if it's Shea Weber. What if it was Eric Stahl? If it's Eric Stahl. It does Felino fight Stahl? No. Probably no, he doesn't. Not. Uh, if it's Nick Suzuki, yeah, you know, if it's somebody like that, I don't, I don't think that that happens. So I think the who and everything else, and I will say that is one of the scarier incidents I've seen. Oh yeah, on the ice in a long time, and it's like when you see, all right, Tavares is getting up, and then when he goes, that's yeah. When so we're just happy today at the recording of of this podcast that uh, the reports are that you know John Tavares is doing much better but that's still going to be a long road for him yeah. to get back on so hopefully that answers that holland it's it's just a very kind of uh i think we answered it without answering it like, yeah i mean i i don't think nick felino should have been suspended uh, you know I, I don't think anything else should have come out of that uh yeah. for cory perry uh, for him he feels terrible and i hate to I hate to do this i think for cory perry maybe there's some relief of you feel terrible, and you're like, all right, well, I did that, and now, you know. That's out of the way, and yeah. now, now you can just play. Exactly. Like, I, I don't have to feel bad. And by the way, the Montreal Canadiens, as, as much as social media can be awful, the fact that they immediately had a response, and this is Toronto and Montreal. This is as heated as any, you know, city versus city that you'll find on planet Earth when it comes to their sports teams, and in, in particular hockey. Yeah. Um, for them to just right away say whatever for John Tavares our thoughts are there whatever we need this is an unfortunate incident Um, I think it's just you know your best 
that you move on from it. And, and the funny thing for me now is I, I kind of parked Felino and, and Perry after the game. And my thought immediately was hopefully we'll hear news on the Leaf captain being able to uh, recover completely and get back on the ice. Yep. So that's uh, that's that. All right. That's, so, uh, again, if you have a question about the Hurricanes or really anything, hockey, cities, travel, food, um, rec- rest, recovery, sleep. Well, we are getting to the point, well, you are at least, that you could go back out and eat food on the road, a delicious meal of food. Yeah, getting outside, close to it. Yeah, on outside. a patio. Um, give us a call, 919-500, Stephen Lorenz, Dougie Hamilton. That's 919-500-7819. It's toll-free, and it's phone lines are open 24-7, so you can call whenever uh, the mood strikes you. And, and if there is a Carrie in Holland who's listening. Right. Give us a call or reach out to us on Twitter or email us or, you know, whatever. I guess she would speak Dutch or he. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe English. But maybe English. Yeah. Yeah, run we're it through done. Google Translate. We'll we figure it out. We're yeah. all set. Uh, one last thing before we get out of here. Okay, doke. Uh, so a quick uh, game six prognostication. How do you see game six playing out considering how even uh, this series has been? Because even the 5-2 game was a 2-2 game going into the third period. Yeah, I mean, I honestly thought game five would swing heavily in favor of the Hurricanes, you know, like a 4-1, 5-1 type of win. Uh, Obviously, that was not the case. Um, And then I figured, you know, that would lead into the Hurricanes having to grind out a win in game six. I think that's probably still the case. I think the Hurricanes are going to have to go in there and win a very tightly contested game, Uh, even though I think they will take some momentum and, and some jump uh, from this overtime win, and I think the Predators are probably going to feel a little, uh, you know, defeated, you know, having won two in a row in double overtime and then dropping that one early in OT last night. But uh, I think they'll be re-energized by um, an even bigger crowd uh, tomorrow, Predators increasing their capacity to over 14,000 for Game 6. I think they'll be a little energized by that. Um, and I think it's probably going to be a tight game. I think the Hurricanes are just going to have to grind out a victory. By the way, can we give a round of applause to the Caniacs, the 12,000 who are here? I don't know if it's louder than if we had the noise meters. I don't know if it's louder than that game three or that game four in 2019 against the Washington Capitals in the first round. I mean, that one, they, those but, games are probably louder. But you will have a hard time convincing me that there was more electricity in that building than what we saw last night and in the games here in Raleigh so far this postseason. And yeah. It's great to have the fans back. I'm with you. I think uh, it's going to be a grinding game. Uh, that's just the way that this series has, has turned itself into. It will be a grinding game six. But uh, I think that the Canes will take the momentum of getting the bounce in overtime. This will sound kind of crazy. First goal on that one's going to be big. Because the first goal in the series really hasn't mattered that much. And normally it does. Um, you know, at least as far as like one team running away with it. We've had, uh, the this series has had eight. The, the game has been tied by the Carolina Hurricanes eight times in, in this yeah. series. Like where they've trailed and, and right. come back to tie it. So... Uh, again, that resiliency in their back pocket. I'm expecting a close game. I don't think it'll go to overtime, though. I, I think if the, the Canes get on the board first and lean on Nashville and make it a difficult game, uh, it, it might be over 
Still around one in the morning because it's a nine thirty face off. Yeah, okay. speak it into existence. No overtime. Game yeah. six. Don't even think about it. No, don't no. even get it in your brain. No, it's it's, it's going to be as an overtime far away game. from my my simple mind as it possibly can be. Although, I, no offense, the thrill of calling overtime games is pretty. I mean, pretty there's fun. you know overtime playoffs, but uh, I don't know if there's enough coffee or Red Bull or nerves to get through a fourth street overtime game. Which, you know, by the way, three straight is a... This never happened before in franchise history. So, just setting record after record here. First off, yes, there is. Second, man, just run on the adrenaline. It's the playoffs. Well, yeah, that. Playoffs. But then the nerves, I'm just saying, we've... I, you know, your nerves heart are afraid. They're, they're a bit. Yeah. Afraid. I'm, oh, I'm good. Being a cable car, my friend. All right. All right. That'll do it for this episode of Kane's Cast Playoff Edition, and it is episode 177. And I say for the webs, Michael Smith. And TV's Mike Maniscalco. We will talk to you next week. Moi moi. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to this <laughs> podcast. Go Kane's.